don't exercise very much, so I was a bit disappointed that at the end of the water sprinkling, my arm was starting to uh, <laughs> to uh, get a little a little tense. So if we uh, if we do that throughout the Easter season, which is pretty customary, I'll have to do some curls or something. Um, today is the uh, today's the end of or yeah, it is the end of the Christmas season, and we finished the Christmas season with the feast of the baptism of the Lord. So it's kind of a a really quick, we, we passed just a few weeks ago from his birth, and now he's 30 years old. So sort of a, sort of a, a huge leap. And uh, one thing I would just encourage you from the outset to do is to meditate upon what are often called his hidden years, his life um, in Nazareth with Mary and Joseph. There's a lot of fruit uh, that can be drawn from that. But looking at our, our feast day today, this moment when our Lord begins his public ministry, when he's baptized by John in the River Jordan, I just want to draw some, what I, what I hope will be some, some helpful kind of parallels, and I'll explain in a minute what this means, but some parallels between our, the current state of our society, which I know is on a lot of people's minds, and sort of how we can draw some insight and maybe some solutions for how to approach that from our Lord's baptism and from our own baptism, which we also remember on this day. So, um, it's, it's nothing that you don't already know, but the last 12 months have been a bit crazy for our nation, just with uh, COVID and everything that entails, producing all sorts of reactions all across the spectrum from all kinds of people, <clears throat> ranging from panic and anxiety to bitterness and anger and um, everything in between, arguments and just uh, so much. And then you build on top of that just months and months of rioting in cities across the country, the election season, and then this past week, the sort of storming of the Capitol. There's just sort of a lot, and I've been hearing from a lot of people in different contexts, um, different conversations I've had, that it's just sort of, it's just becoming somewhat of a burden to think about and even know kind of how to, how to sort of uh, approach all of these things. And I'll, I'll say, first of all, I kind of want to point out a couple of pitfalls that I see as things that's very easy for us to fall into um, regarding a, a, an approach that won't really help us kind of deal with these things as our Lord would want us to deal with them. I want to point out a couple pitfalls, a couple kind of dispositions that are going to be unhelpful. I also want to point out what I think is a, a strong temptation on our part to look for a, a more overall solution to these things in the wrong place. So a couple pitfall, pitfalls, uh, looking for a solution in the wrong place, and then where we find the only sort of complete and full solution to these things. So first, a couple of pitfalls. Um, one thing I see a lot of is people reacting to just sort of the general state of society, um, mostly by choosing, and it is a choice, by choosing to live from a place of fear. Uh, this, in an extreme version, can even take uh, sort of the form of, of panic. Some people, with all these different things happening, are choosing to kind of sit uh, in a place of, of panic. And oftentimes, this disposition will take the form of question, like hypothetical questions about the future, about events that have not yet occurred but might happen. People will often be stuck in cycles of asking themselves questions like, What's going to happen to our country? Is it going to split apart? Are we going to enter a civil war? Uh, what's going to happen to, to my family, to my kids, to my job? 
What's going to happen? Is there going to be some sort of religious or political persecution? Like, what, you know, these sort of questions about the future that the more they're dwelt upon, these things that have not yet happened but could, sort of worst case scenarios, the more it produces kind of a fear and an anxiety and, and even in some people a panic. This might not be you. You might be phlegmatic like me and you just don't get it. I don't know. You just don't get worked up about this stuff. But, uh, but for many people, this is the case. They just sort of choose to kind of sit in this place of, of intense fear. Another reaction, I would say this is slightly more common in conversations that I've had and just what I've noticed is um, choosing to react to all of these things with what you might, you might term a lazy anger or an idle anger. I've talked about this before in a homily, but it's, it's really critical for us to be able to distinguish between righteous anger, which is anger over an injustice, right? It's anger over an evil situation. It's not directed at a person, but at a person's action or an evil situation. And righteous anger also has to have the follow-up that it's productive in some way, right? Righteous anger will lead us to do something good. Unfortunately, and, and to give a simple example of that, actually, would be even if something strikes us immediately, the passion of anger rises up within us over some injustice, even if, it, if the transformation of that into something productive is as simple as offering a quick prayer or sacrifice, for that injustice to be over, even that can, can qualify as righteous anger, just that little transformation. But I'm afraid that many people I run across have the tendency to slip into what I would like to call this lazy anger or idle anger. It usually happens uh, from the news, it usually happens something like this. We read or we watch five minutes, anywhere between five minutes and five hours of news, somewhere in that realm. And uh, actually, I hardly read any news. And the other day, I, I, I scrolled news for about 10 minutes, which is longer than I think I've done in, in months. And at the end of that, I just felt nauseous. I felt like everything was burning down like in the world. And so we really need to be aware of the impact that that has on us. But, but yeah, usually, lazy anger arises. We consume five minutes to five hours of news. And then we allow our blood to begin to boil, and we sort of decide that it's okay to just kind of wander through the rest of the day, or maybe the rest of the week, in sort of just this kind of perpetual state of unproductive anger that's not really ordered towards doing anything fruitful, even praying or sacrificing for an injustice to be done. It's just sort of, just sort of there, and we decide to, to sit in it. Neither of these things, of course, the disposition of fear, anxiety, panic, or disposition of unproductive, lazy anger is what the Lord wants from us. I will say, too, one thing that it's interesting to note is that fear will often quickly become anger. When you're in a place of fear, you feel like you have no control over what's happening. And our, our tendency as human beings is we want to have a sense of certainty and security and control over our life. So when you're in fear, you feel like you have no control. Well, choosing to pass over from fear to anger uh, gives us a little bit of a sense of control. And so a lot of times that will happen even within seconds. We'll pass from, I'm afraid of what could happen in this situation, now I let myself slip into a lazy anger over this situation because it makes me feel like I have a little bit of control. 
And rather than surrendering to God, surrendering all of these things to God as sort of an act of the will in the moment, we surrender to these different circumstances and we begin to let them dictate our disposition of heart. This is really critical. When we allow ourselves to sit in a constant state of fear or of lazy anger, what we're doing is we are enslaving ourselves to the circumstances around us. We're actually giving over control. Anger gives a false illusion that we have control, but we're actually allowing these other things to dictate how I'm living throughout the day or throughout the week or whatever. It's sort of like if you imagine you're on vacation in Colorado, you're hiking on some trail, you see a bear trap off, off the trail, and you're like, I'm just gonna wander over to this bear trap and just kind of stick my leg in it, and, uh, and there you go, like you're stuck. That's, that's exactly what we do when we choose to kind of live in those dispositions of heart. We choose to just constantly be afraid instead of surrendering whatever those circumstances are to divine providence, or we choose to constantly be in a state of useless anger without surrendering those things to God either. We enslave ourselves to our circumstances. A similar thing happened, um, or was likely to happen at least, in Palestine in the time of Jesus. So those of you who might know a little of the historical background of our Lord's life will, might know that by the time he was 30 years old, so in about AD 30, Palestine had been under Roman control for a little over 80 years. So if you imagine another country invading the United States in the 1930s, taking over control, and now here we are in 2020, and they're still in control, that's what the Jews would have felt like and what they would have experienced in, in the time of Jesus when he was beginning his public ministry. They'd been under Roman control for a little over 80 years, and it had produced lots of resentment, of course, and we see this come out in the Gospels. And we also see that many of the Jews would have fallen into the response of allowing themselves to slip into a state of perpetual kind of lazy anger towards the Romans. Some of them, it seems, tried to be productive with it, but many of them didn't. And also, you can probably guess that many of the Jews, particularly those maybe who weren't in, I don't know, positions of power or authority, they're just out in some village, they may have lived their life in, in somewhat of a constant state of fear. The Romans were pretty brutal, so if a, a particular village showed any sign of rebellion, they would often send a legion of soldiers and just destroy everything and everyone. Um, and so you can imagine living in Palestine at that time, you, you would be kind of on edge a lot, and it would be very easy to give in um, to a constant uh, sort of disposition of fear rather than surrendering the circumstances um, to God. Whether in Palestine or in our current situation today, we have a tendency as human beings when the worldly circumstances around us are all kind of messed up, we have a tendency to look for a kind of all-encompassing solution to that from the world. This is a very kind of subtle and dangerous tendency that we have. We, we think that in the case of all of these bad things that are happening around us, the answer will come in what you might call political liberation. Like, real freedom is going to come from something out there that's going to kind of free us from all of these things. Throughout the time of the Jews in Palestine, different 
different men would rise up as sort of military leaders to try and overthrow the Romans, and they were very popular. The ancient historian Josephus, who wrote in the first century, described many, many of these men who would gather others around them to try and overthrow the Romans. So this, this effort to try and find a, a purely kind of solution out there to give them freedom would have been very popular. When we look at the figure of John the Baptist, who shows up in our gospel today, he's a very charismatic man. It would have been easy for him to sort of preach to the, the fears and the anger of the Jews and try and rally them around himself like many had before to sort of overthrow the Roman government and find kind of political liberation. Fulton Sheen talks a little bit about this in his Life of Christ. He says, with the country under a Roman yoke, it would have been a more certain route to popularity for John to promise that the one who was to come, the one whom he announced, would be a political liberator. That would have been the way of men. But instead of a call to arms, John gave a call to a reparation for sin. He gave a call to a reparation for sin. He said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus comes and begins to preach that he would free men from their sins. A freedom is sort of much deeper than political liberation. In our own time, in talking with people over past months, I will say that if we aren't careful, we can begin very easily, with all of this stuff happening around us, to begin to look almost exclusively for relief from worldly solutions. Sort of seeking a purely political liberation to the things that are happening. One potential problem with that is, first of all, that, just in my humble opinion, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better, <laughs> just uh, so we can be sober about kind of the direction of our culture in general. But seeking sort of a, a purely political or worldly solution to the situation that we're in is going to end up being a very frustrating enterprise, um, something that's not going to give us the freedom of heart that the Lord wants to give. When we look at his baptism in the Jordan, and then we meditate on our own baptism, this is the place where we actually see what true freedom is and what we have to lean on if we want to avoid slipping into those pitfalls. If you want to avoid slipping into a state of constant fear or anxiety, if you want to avoid slipping into a consistent state of useless anger, what you have to do is you have to remember that you are a beloved son or daughter of God and that Christ has set you free from the only real chains that exist in this life, which is sin and Satan. He has set you free from those. And if you choose to live from that place each and every day, what you will experience within you is a kind of freedom that no matter how bad the circumstance around you get, they can't touch it. They can't touch it. The saints were very aware of this. Um, I read recently of an interview that John Paul II had with a reporter once where the reporter asked him, he said, Holy Father, uh, what do you do in your free time? And he looked him dead in the eye and he said, all my time is free. All my time is free. Right? When you, when you live in the light as a child of God and, 
and that's where you draw the source of, of energy and everything for, for how you live, live your life, all, all your time will be free, right? You're not enslaved to anyone or any circumstance or anything. You will, you will be free. Maximilian Kolbe, those of you familiar with the story, will, will know that at the end of his life when he's in Auschwitz, it looks like from the outside that he has no freedom at all, right? That he's enslaved in the worst possible way. He doesn't get to choose where he sleeps. He doesn't choose what he wears. He doesn't choose what he eats, who he spends time with, what he spends his time doing. He doesn't get to choose any of that. But when he piped up and said, I'll take the place of that man who's going to go into a starvation bunker and I'll put my life in his place. Was he free? He was the most free man for miles around. <laughs> for miles and miles around, he was the most free man. Think about our Lord on the cross. He doesn't look free. He, he's not free to even move his limbs. He's barely free to breathe, right? His lungs are filling with blood and he's slowly suffocating. But when he forgave his enemies from the cross, was he free? Doesn't get more free than that. My right, friends, we need to make sure we are not allowing things outside of us to dictate how free we live. You are free because the Lord set you free in baptism and nothing can change that. The last thing I'll, I'll offer to you is that when the Lord set us free in baptism, He didn't only set us free from something, from sin and Satan and death, He set us free for something. The baptism of Jesus is the beginning of His public ministry. It's the beginning of His mission of salvation. Right? When we were set free in baptism, we were given freedom for something as well. Freedom to go out and make disciples of all nations and win souls. Right? That's what we were given freedom to do. And one thing, if you pay close attention, people who end up falling into fear anger, cynicism, a critical spirit as their reaction to circumstances around them, nobody is really interested in following them to the Lord. Right? Their life ceases to be attractive. It, nobody is going to sort of jump on their bandwagon if that's, the, if that's the disposition they carry with them on a daily basis. For us to be effective witnesses of the gospel, you have to be living every day from the freedom of a son or daughter of God. If you live from those other places, you are shackling yourself and preventing yourself from leading other souls to the Lord, which is the, the primary purpose for the existence of the church, is salvation of souls. Neither, when you just think about the worldly realm, you're probably also not going to be very effective at renewing culture either, <laughs> which is another task we have, secondary to saving souls. Probably we won't be very effective at that either if we allow these circumstances to, to make us bitter and cynical and so on. Maximilian Kolbe, who had every worldly reason to be cynical and bitter and angry and so on, if he had given in to that, there's no way he would have had the strength to offer his life for that man. There's no way. Only if he was living every day in the freedom of a son of God, free to love, would he have had the courage to make that sacrifice? The same is true of us, right? We can't let these things have control of us. We need to live 
free. If we do that, we will be effective witnesses to the world. And finally, just as an encouragement there, I'm going to leave you with a, a line from St. Paul to the Galatians, which I found was very helpful as I was thinking about all these different things. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery.